So I'm going to talk about our experience. What does it mean to have language? How is language related to, our, to what we call experiencing? And specifically, I want to talk about the way that language and emotions are related. And there is a very, very big lacuna in this area. A lot of people are talking and thinking about language and the evolution of language. It's a growth industry, in fact. And a lot of people are thinking about emotions. There is a lot of work in emotions. And also on the expression of emotions, which is, of course, influenced very much by Darwin's great book. But there is very little about the relationship between the evolution of language and the evolution of emotions. There is a little bit, but there is very little. So my basic argument is that language, that our, the language that we are using, mature language, human language, has very specific and inherent emotional facets. And these facets are tightly bound with the communicator's ima ima imaginative ability and the whole project of thinking about the evolution of language has to do with thinking about the evolution of imagination. So I, have, I, I want to pose some questions and I will try to give an outline of an answer to some of them. First of all, how do we approach the problem of the evolution of linguistic communication. Now, as you see, I suddenly switched. I'm not talking about language. I'm talking about linguistic communication. And this is not incidental. It is because I'm going to talk about the communicative, communicative function, which I think we all agree is rather important for uh, a rather important function of language. Not the only function of language, but a very important one. So how do I approach the problem at all? And the second question is, okay, we have this thing that we call language and what, and there were preconditions for its evolution and Kim told us about many of them. He gave us a very good idea of, about the importance of uh, extractive foraging and complicated social learning that is associated with it for the evolution of, uh, of language, but they are also as a precondition for the evolution of, uh, of, uh, of language, but there are also other preconditions, and I want to highlight the emotional preconditions that enable the evolution of uh, linguistic communication. What are they? And the third question is, once language is in place, even the beginnings of language are in place, and I will explain what I mean by language, what, how does it change human emotions? And last, if we, what are the coevolutionary relations between language and how, how does this coevolutionary re relation between language and the emotions help us to understand the other facets of human evolution? So, how do I, we approach the problem? Our approach to the problem is was presented here by Celia. What we assume is that we're really talking about what Kim called an adaptive suit. suit. It's a complex thing. If we assume that language is part of an evolved, very sophisticated mental apparatus, like the hand, we expect to see coevolutionary relations between language and other facets of human uh, mentality. 
you see, if, we, we, if we're thinking about the mind as a kind of uh, made up of little modules which, separate, uh, which evolve separately, the coevolutionary question is not very important because this one evolves separately for this reason and the other one evolves separately for that reason and so on. But if we're asking, if we're posing the question in this way, then the coevolutionary co question becomes crucial, central to the whole project. In order, however, to make sense of this question, to answer it in a rather more specific way, we have to characterize language. What is language? And only when we characterize language shall we ask the classical evolutionary question that we are always asking about every kind of trait that we want to study evolutionarily. What kind of evolutionary dynamics are involved? What kind? It, they are all, all related questions. What were the preconditions? What were the acceptations, so to speak? Uh, and what stages did this evolution go through? When did a given stage arise? What were the selection pressures? These are all classical questions. We ask them about every kind of trait, and we want to ask them about language. But the, question, the first question we have to start is, what is language? So I'm going to, to present again very, very briefly a view of language that was developed by a colleague of mine in Tel Aviv University, Daniel Dorr, he's a linguist, and he sees language as a kind of communication technology. It is a very Vygotskian view of language, words, sentences, the whole communication, the whole communication out there, the linguistic communication, is a kind of technology. And this technology is built up gradually the way technologies are. Now, his assumption is that communication in general creates a common ground, of course, between communicators. And it, it can do it in two basically different ways. In fact, there are three basically different ways, but we can divide them into two very general types. One is by the direct sharing of experience. If I make, for example, okay, uh, an alarm call, this alarm call is part of the dangerous situation and it, makes, and it makes you, the listener, immediately, perceptually perceive the danger that is in the here and now. The other way, which is still in the here and now, is to do something very much more complicated about which Kim was talking here, and that is to represent in some way, to, in an iconic way, a kind of situation which I have experienced and bring it to you, into your here and now, so that you now experience it. This, uh, th this is what he called experiential communication. Communication where we share experiences. With language, with words, we do something completely different. What we do with language is we translate our private experience into some kind of code, which is socially constructed, it's normative, and this code is then decoded, and then we create an utterance, this, and this utterance is then entering into the mind of the listener, is decoded, and is translated into the experience of the listener. It's a very completely different thing. So if we're thinking about presentational and representational kind of 
uh, experiences, this is what we have. We have the alarm call, and here we have the ritual. And again, of course, the difference is tremendous. And the uh, uh, mimesis, the ability to, to imitate, the ability to iconically represent situations, is something we cannot take for granted. And as, as Kim has uh, pointed out, it is a very big question how exactly this evolved. And one of the ways in, in which it could have evolved is via the way in, uh, in which he suggested. But nevertheless, the two strategies share the common, the common, the, uh, the common feature that they are 